to introduce my friend Walt Opie. And uh, Walt's been a longtime Dharma practitioner and, uh, and a real dedicated supporter of the Dharma for many, many years. He worked at Spirit Rock for many years and uh, was in- intimately involved in many of the details there and the teachers there and the retreats. And uh, he's, very, he's a writer, and so he would write articles about teachers and the newsletters of Spirit Rock and publicity for Spirit Rock. And so he was kind of at the heart of a certain kind of uh, vipassana scene for quite <laughs> many years. And, um, and now he's a little bit more on his own with raising a two-year-old daughter, which is a whole new life. And he's still on the board for the uh, Buddhist prison, uh, uh, Buddhist prisons, Buddhist Pathways Prison Project. <laughs> Um, so he's very involved with uh, working, bringing Buddhism into state prisons. He's on the board of directors for uh, the organization. And, uh, and he's done a lot of work with recovery, both for himself. And then I think probably you got pulled into that uh, through uh, Kevin Griffin. So yep. Ke- Kevin Griffin pulled him in, they're friends, and, and, and uh, brought him in as an, kind of an apprentice. And I think in, he's been helping him with teaching retreats, recovery, Buddhist recovery retreats for many years now. And... Uh, and uh, it was wonderful to have Walt go through our program here, and, and it's kind of mm-hmm. special to have you come back. It's whenever alumni come back, and I feel so kind of proud, you know, that, <laughs> that, they, that they learned something in there. <clears throat> it's true. <laughs> so, thank you very much. Thanks, Gil. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, my name's Walt. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> That's one way. To, um, it's funny, my, uh, so I am a recovering alcoholic and I, um, I heard you all talking about suffering, uh, right when I got here, very appropriate topic. Uh, and, uh, I was thinking that what, what happened for me was I, I hit my, uh, so-called bottom when I was in my, um, early 20s, basically 21, and I was in a fraternity on a college campus, and it was not cool to be unhappy and miserable, <laughs> you know, so I had to, I had, did have shame about my uh, suffering at that time, and I remember um, the last meeting I ever had for this uh, fraternity that I was in, which, by the way, if you're an alcoholic, a fraternity is a great thing to join, <laughs> Unfortunately, um, but I stood up. We we went around the circle. There were like seventy guys in this room for the last meeting of my senior year, and I stood up and said, uh, as a joke, "I'm Walt and I'm an alcoholic," and it just brought down the house. But the sad truth was, I was true. <laughs> um, and then I ended up going to rehab right out of college, which is kind of a strange progression, but. Um, and that was really when my journey, I knew that I was suffering and uh, feeling isolated and alone, even in a crowded college campus. And, uh, but I didn't know what to do about it. You know, I actually tried to quit on my own for a while. Uh, and it was, I didn't have any support. And it was easier to just drink with my friends than not drink with them. And I got tired of watching TV by myself. Um, so I'm trying to figure out, yeah, how much to go into my story, trying to just give you some sense of where I'm coming from. But, 
Uh, one thing that happened out of the at the treatment center was I realized that I'd been, um, since we have the parami of truth today, I realized I'd been lying about so much for so long because if you're drinking and using from the age of 11 or 12, which is when I started, um, the uh, you have to lie about everything you're doing all the time. So when I arrived at this treatment center, the first thing they do is ask you to tell them all the things you did, you, what drugs have you done, just so they can get some idea of who they're, what they're dealing with. And so I kind of fudged it and just told the guy, you know, I drank and smoked pot and that's about it and whatever. And he, and he was like a re- Vietnam vet in recovery. And he just stopped to like put his pen down and looked at me and said, no, really, what drugs have you done? <laughs> and there was just this great moment of realizing like, oh, no, he really wants to t- me to tell the truth here. <laughs> and, I, and I had to process it. Can I get in trouble if I tell him the truth? And I realized, no, actually, the whole point is they're going to help me. <laughs> so I actually was honest with him, and, and it felt really good. I just, I've always remembered that, that I just sat there and actually tried to recall everything that I could tell him. And... Uh, that was an early uh, connection that was meaningful. <laughs> it was just this small thing, but it was the just um, finally being truthful about what I'd been up to. And uh, so I spent 28 days in that rehab. There were a lot of people from, uh, it was in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is uh, in the news for various reasons these days. But um, the... Uh, a lot of people were being bussed or, or brought in from New York City, uh, crack addicts at the time. It was the um, 1987, so there was a, um, the crack epidemic was going on, and they bussed a lot of people to Virginia, f- I guess, to get them out of the um, urban environment. So that was quite an education for me at that time, um, for in many different ways, and that also introduced me to the 12-step programs in AA, and uh, which is still, as far as I understand, there are a lot more options now, but it's still a key thing that uh, people are usually introduced to is uh, AA, NA, different 12-step programs. And uh, so, yeah, I graduated from college and started this whole new spiritual life in a way that I wasn't wasn't part of my plan necessarily and uh, somehow that brings me to this group today and just trying to figure out best use of our time here well as I think most everybody here knows but addiction is more common than many people realize Uh, there were approximately Uh, 20.6 million people in the United States over the age of 12 with an addiction in 2011. Although most people don't get the treatment they need, over 3 million people in 2011 received treatment for their addiction. Just to give some idea of the proportions we're talking about. Uh, 100 people, this statistic seems to be still pretty true, that 100 people die every day from drug overdoses. And uh, this rate has tripled in the last 20 or 30 years. It might even be more than tripled by now. It's been pretty bad in the past five years or more. Um, Over 5 million emergency room visits in 2011 were drug-related. 
five, I don't know how many emergency room visits there were, but five million of them drug-related. Um, 6.8 million people with an addiction have a mental illness as well. Over 90% of those with an addiction began drinking, smoking, or using drugs before the age of 18. So that's a common thing that starts early for people that become addicted. That was my story. And uh, it's estimated that over 95% of those who need treatment for alcoholism don't feel they need treatment. So that's another (laughs) interesting aspect of it. Uh, And more people do receive treatment for alcohol than any other single substance. So the you know there's i I like to try to keep up with the current research, but uh so I have a few things to offer it 's constantly changing there's um somebody that I think is worth knowing about is Judson Brewer. He came out with this book, The Craving Mind: From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love: Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits and he 's talking to he 's a big mindfulness guy he um what, he's at Brown now, I think. Uh, they have a mindfulness center at Brown University, and I think he's the director of it now. It's not. I think that's happened since this book came out. This book was pretty new, though. It's, um, there's also a couple of apps, right? Oh, yeah. There's, he's got... Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a big smoking. That's one of his areas of expertise. Uh, he bring, helps people quit smoking using um, mindfulness. He has a great story about um, you know people that are trying to quit smoking. He had this uh, one woman went out and very mindfully smoked a cigarette, and then came back and was like, "These things taste terrible." <laughs> you know, it's like. They had never, she had really never paid that close of attention to like the actual experience of smoking. It was just this automatic habit that she got into. Uh, I, I didn't, I don't have it marked, but that was a good story in here. Um, so I have a few quotes from him. He says, uh, a definition of addiction is in order. Uh, during my residency training, this is Jud- Judson Brewer, I learned perhaps the most straightforward of guidelines. Addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. It's a pretty broad definition of addiction, but I think it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, other definitions would include a sense of abuse, abusing some some substance or uh, behavior, and a dependence, having some kind of dependence on it. But um, I like that addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. And uh, he goes on. Maybe I will read this because I think it's interesting and it actually kind of tells my story. And this is from an article he wrote in Mindfulness and Psychology called Breaking the Addiction Loop. Uh, He says, addictions are among them. This is Judson Brewer. Addictions are among the most damaging of human conditions, significantly affecting the mental, physical, and economic health of individuals, families, and their communities. Alcoholism can cost up to 6% of a country's gross domestic product. 
uh, in the U.S., that amounts to $2 every time anyone has a drink. Uh, but why are addictions so prevalent? How do addictions start? They often begin with a simple pairing of a drug or behavior with an affective state. For example, a girl goes to a party and has her first drink. When she drinks, she might notice that she fits in, quote, quote, fits in, gets a buzz from the alcohol and becomes less shy or, or awkward and more comfortable around others. She has just formed an associative memory, pairing her increased good feelings and de- decreased unpleasant feelings with drinking alcohol. The next time she's at a party, she will likely remember what happened last time. So she repeats the process by again having a drink, thus reinforcing the associative memory she has laid down previously. Importantly, the more often this associative learning process gets repeated and reinforced, the more automatic it becomes until the girl heads straight for the booze at a party without thinking. Over time, she must consume more and more alcohol to get the desired effect because she develops a physical tolerance to alcohol. Eventually, she may consume so much alcohol that she starts blacking out. Then, then she's kind of off. So that, I think that's a pretty fair description of what happens for some people. Certainly it's not everybody. But, um, and that, I, can, I can relate to that a lot in my personal experience. And uh, I did get to the point where I would black out all the time. And uh, which was what, in a way, made it easy for me to quit when I finally was kind of confronted with what had been happening. Because I, the more I thought about it, it's like, yeah, that was. There's nothing good about that. I'm not in control if I'm in a blackout. Um. So, the Judson Brewer is great at, in terms of uh, he talks about using mindfulness to look at the addiction loop. Uh, and it is interesting how once once we get caught, somebody gets caught in that cycle, it's it's very hard to break, even as consequences start getting worse and worse. Um, I'm trying to remember, I have so there's another author that I really like. Who this book came out this year, night twenty nineteen called Never Enough to Judith Grizel and the Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. So she was a young addict who uh, went to school. I think she got clean and sober first and then went to school to become a neuroscientist to figure out what causes addiction. <laughs> and then she came out with this book. And uh, she... Uh, I heard her on NPR, uh, so there's a great, if you're interested, there was a great interview with Terry Gross uh, with her that um, my wife actually heard it and called me and said, she was in the car and she called me at home and said, you have to turn on the radio right now. (laughs) And I did and I was glad I did. (laughs) So just to give you a little, uh, she said something really interesting too that's uh, so she says the relationship between drugs and the brain is bi-directional. The brain is not just a passive recipient of drug actions, but responds to the effects of the drugs. 
repeated administration of any drug that influences brain activity leads the brain to adapt in order to compensate for the change associated with the drug. So the brain's response to a drug is always to facilitate the opposite state. Therefore, the only way for any regular user to feel normal is to take the drug. Getting high, if it occurs at all, is increasingly short-lived, and so the purpose of using is to stave off withdrawal. Eventually, exposure to a favorite drug results in virtually no change in mesolimbic dopamine, which brings a sense of pleasure, but withholding it leads to a big drop, which we experience as a feeling of disappointment and craving. Thus, the most profound law of drug use is this. There is no free lunch. Um, So I think that's really interesting that the brain is compensating for the drug, and then that's kind of part of what we're caught in when we're taking drugs. And uh, that it becomes increasingly difficult to get the effect that you're even trying to get because the brain is so so good at compensating. (laughs) So it's actually uh, really interesting. And I know for me, my drinking, I had to keep drinking more and more because I did... I had a pretty serious tolerance. And of course, you're in a fraternity, if you're in a fraternity, that tends to be a bragging point. But meanwhile, it's, uh, you know, there's nothing really there to brag about and if, you know, when we see it for what it really is. Um, so this woman, Judith, I, I find her really interesting because she, uh, you know, one thing that is true is addicts like uh, in terms of being a chaplain, you know, it's, um, well, for example, I, uh, work with, have worked with Kevin Griffin and I run, I ran a, uh, Buddhist recovery group for seven years in Berkeley by myself based on Kevin's work. And, uh, it is true that addicts tend to relate to other addicts in a way. It's partly because, we kind of like to know that you've suffered too. If you're going to help me, <laughs> prove to me that you've been through something painful, as painful as I have. There's some sense of that, I think. So that's just something to be aware of. I don't think it means that you couldn't help somebody, uh, but it's just something to uh, think about. Because it's funny, Judson Brewer is not a recovering addict in any way. And he, uh, even in his book, he's, he's trying to sort of figure out talks about trying to figure out how to relate to addicts since he's not one he's really a he's just a, a in the profession a professional side of it um there's some good i mean the book's worth checking out he he it's interesting so uh but anyway this woman i find interesting since she is in recovery and a scientist she says um after about 30 years of highly motivated focus on the research I'd say there are four primary reasons people like her develop addictions. The four are these. uh, An inherited biological disposition, copious drug exposure, particularly during adolescence, and a catalyzing environment. Um, I assume she means some kind of trauma she doesn't explain it that well, the catalyzing environment. 
Uh, let's see. So for, for me, it was interesting. I know, and her math is fuzzy. <laughs> that's the sentence. That's the quote. It sounds like three things to me, but she says four. Uh, don't ask. I think maybe math is not her strong point. I don't know. Um, but the biological disposition part is worth noting because we, um, it was interesting in my family. My father's side of the family, they certainly drank socially a lot. But there was no obvious alcoholism per se. And my mother's side of the family was kind of quiet. It was kind of like for a lot of people we didn't even know that well. <laughs> and so when it turned out I was an alcoholic and I went through the whole treatment thing and started talking about it with my parents, because I had talked about it even before I actually quit and said, I think I might have a real drinking problem. And they said, Oh, you're just in college, you'll be fine. As soon as you graduate, your problems will be over. That turned out to not be true. <laughs> but uh, so denial, we, one word that comes up a lot around addiction and alcoholism is denial. And it's not only the person with the problem, but it can often be their family members, even friends. Uh, it's, it, so denial, I'll, I might talk about that a little more in a minute. Um, but so then it turned out that my mother's side of the family was riddled with alcoholism. And nobody talked about it. So that's the other thing. It's, there's the shame. So it's kind of this hidden secret, and people are trying to keep it hidden. Um, just as an example, uh, members of my family recently started doing the DNA tests, you know, 23andMe. And so we get, my brother did it, and my one of my aunts did it on my mother's side. Well, suddenly uh, we get some contacts from through Facebook this woman starts contacting us and uh, it turns out my grandmother's brother had two kids that he never knew about and was probably an alcoholic. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, DNA tests, my brother was a second cousin to this woman who never knew who her father was and my aunt was a first cousin (laughs) and so it started to narrow in and then they knew like a couple of details about the, the guy and there was a one person that fit the thing, and the more, I st- uh, it has to be him. <laughs> so um, that was just kind of interesting. And my grandmother herself was uh, an alcoholic addict. Um, she she got clean and sober for one year, and it was really remarkable because I felt like I had my grandmother back for the first time. I felt like I'd never really, I'd always been, couldn't understand why I couldn't connect like on a heart level with my grandmother. My other grandmother I had a great connection with, but this one, it was hard. And then she suddenly she was off drugs and alcohol, and I saw her, and I, and I was uh, newly sober. And it was the most beautiful experience to actually kind of have my grandmother back, and plus I was back. <laughs> um, and, but unfortunately, you know, as you get older, it's also often doctors are always prescribing so many medications she got on some kind of painkiller that she decided to mix with a cocktail and then she was back back off and she never got sober again so uh anyway it just it was very interesting to learn that there there was some kind of genetic predisposition that i was carrying that i didn't even know about um until i was pretty far into my alcoholism so this back to what she said that um people that develop addictions tend to have uh 
an inherited biological disposition, a lot of exposure, and uh, especially when they're young and some kind of catalyzing environment. I was exposed to a lot of drinking uh, both by my parents and grandparents who just had a lot of cocktail parties and but it just kind of looked very appealing there's a lot, they plus at five o'clock everybody just seemed to get very excited and run you know either we drive to my grandparents' house for a cocktail party or a bunch of people would show up at our house and they'd all be holding these glasses clinking with ice that looked kind of intriguing to me as a little one uh, so I just who knows but that was sort of the environment let's see um and there's another piece that comes in, and this same woman, uh, Judith Grizel, brings it in so beautifully. I thought I would share this with you as well. So um, she says, At the height of my addiction, when asked about his family, my father would reply that he had two sons. He wouldn't mention her or his daughter. Um, and then she says later in the same uh, section, though there were several turning points in my tra- trajectory, it seems profoundly significant that the material change began when my father inexplicably changed course and took me out for my 23rd birthday. Federal agents, friends' deaths, expulsions and evictions, physical withdrawal, and myriad other tragedies weren't enough to propel me to change. Instead, it was human love and connection. My father's willingness to be seen with me and to treat me with kindness split open my defensive shell of rationalizations and justifications. It broke open the the lonely heart that neither of us knew I still had. And I think that's really um, touching and I can relate to that as well. My So I ended up in this treatment center, and one of the things they do is you meet with a counselor, and they bring in your family at some point. So my parents came, and we met with my counselor, and <clears throat> somewhere in there I was talking about my experience of, of uh, you know, how I'd been grappling with my alcoholism or whatever, and I said something like that I'd never... I think they wanted to know if I'd ever considered suicide. Somehow the suicide came up, which is another thing that comes up a lot with um, in addiction scenarios. Um, and I said, well, I never really contemplated suicide, but if I'd have walked out in front of a truck, you know, been out in the road and a truck ran over me, I wouldn't have cared. That's kind of, it was just like, I didn't care whether I lived or died, but I wasn't actively going to commit suicide but uh, I said it you know pretty matter-of-factly but then I happened to look over at my father who I don't think I had ever seen cry maybe once before and he had tears coming down his cheeks and it really it was very similar to sort of how she described that it kind of broke through so I just kind of realized like you know even if I don't care about myself I should remember there are people who care that much about me that they would cry to hear me say that out loud. And that that really was a big moment for me as I look back. Because I think I was learning a lot in the treatment, 
but I was probably BSing through a lot of it, <laughs> which is another thing addicts may tend to do. But I think there was something, because I'd never seen my father cry and the, just those tears. And there's, uh, there's a great Zen story uh, about the, um, I guess, I think there's a, a Zen teacher in Japan or China. Um, and I, I think it's maybe his brother's son is acting out. And this, uh, they say, well, why don't we have uh, the Zen, your brother, the Zen priest, come over and straighten the kid out. <laughs> and so he comes over and they have dinner. And he can kind of see where this kid is getting rebellious. But he, he doesn't say anything the whole time. He, he doesn't, the Zen teacher. And he's on his way out the door. And the, and the son comes and helps him tie his sandals on. And as he's tying the sandals, some drops of water come down and he looks up and there's tears coming off the cheeks of the Zen master and then the Zen master leaves. But and, the, and the boy turns his life around from that experience. So the guy never actually said anything, just those tears. I always love that story. I hope I told it <laughs> fairly well. Um, so anyway, the, my father's tears were kind of like that. It just kind of woke me up a little and... Uh, so I love that story. Um, so she says, just to conclude what she said there, as we grapple to respond to the growing population of addicts, we do well to recognize that disordered use comes from, thrives in, and creates alienation. This means that building walls to keep us from our emotions or our neighbors will only make things worse by feeding the epidemic. And that brings me to uh, one other person that I'm really uh, fond of these days. <laughs> has, any, has anybody heard of this book, Chasing the Scream by uh, Johan Hari? Do you have, yeah. And uh, the first and last days of the war on drugs. He, I think he, he's a British journalist. He kind of went around the world trying to figure out, well, how are people grappling with addiction around the world and what's working, what's not? And it all, he kind of boils it all down a little simplistically, but I think for our purposes it's interesting. He says, it turns out the opposite of, adi- of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Which, uh, certainly if we're you know, learning to be chaplains in some it's a nice thing to keep in mind. And uh, well, what's interesting is how he arrived at that is from another guy that is my named Bruce Alexander, uh, who was recently uh, just, this is a brand new, uh, what is it? March 2019 copy of The Sun, if you're interested. And it's actually a free article that is online. They interviewed... Bruce Alexander, he's a, um, a Canadian doctor. The article is called Filling the Void, Bruce K. Alexander on How Our Culture is Making Us Addicted. And uh, I have a few quotes from that. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting article. But So basically, Bruce Alexander is famous for this um, research project called Rat Park. Have you ever heard of Rat Park? It's um, pretty interesting. The 
I mean, I have some quotes about it, but basically the, um, there was a lot of research being done with lab rats on addiction and they were, they'd put a rat alone in a cage and give them like uh, water in one bottle and morphine in another. And shocker, the rat would end up addicted to morphine. <laughs> and, you know, the, somehow, I can't remember what they thought they proved from that. But, uh, <laughs> but Bruce Alexander <laughs> saw, I might be simplifying it, but uh, just anyway, uh, Bruce Alexander took a look at that and said that this seems a little off, you know. I think we could have, I'd like to try some other experiments with rats. Rats are actually very social creatures, it turns out. And um, so what the, uh, he was skeptical of studies in which rats were kept in small cages with a lever they could press to get morphine or other drugs. They would self-administer the drug until they stopped eating. That's the better version. Uh, Alexander noted that the rats, who are social animals, were under extreme duress due to isolation in these experiments. He and his research colleagues designed their own experiment, creating what they called Rat Rat Park, a, a big container with wood shavings, tin cans, running wheels, and soft nests where rats could romp around together. Uh, when these rats were given access to morphine, they tried it but did not become addicted. His findings challenged the prevailing belief that exposure to an overwhelmingly addictive substance automatically creates insatiable cravings for more. And then it turns out there was a a human version of this during the Vietnam War. Uh, You may have heard about this, but... So uh, especially, I guess, near the end of the Vietnam War, a huge number of soldiers started to become addicted to heroin. I think it was heroin because it was super readily available. They were in a, you know, um, alienating experience. They were, you know, fearful of their combat uh, situations. They probably, some of them probably had uh, PTSD. Uh, you know, a lot of factors came together. So it was, and uh, just tons of addicts. And then it came time for people to come home from the war. And uh, there was a lot of concern by the U.S. government that what, it, what are we going to do with all, we're going to have all these addicts coming back to, into our culture. I just heard on the radio um, that Nixon actually had something to do with this, that he, he made some policy that they they had to, uh, and I'm not, you would think I'm making this up. I think it was called Project Golden Flow. <laughs> and it was, um, they had to pass, I don't know how else, to, a urine test before they could come back home. So, like, so they had to get off the drugs at least long enough to have a clean urine test to then fly home. So this may have contributed to, but, uh, I don't know how much that affected things. But the bottom line was there was a lot of concern that all these people would continue their addictions when they got back to the U.S. Well, out of, I think out of only about 5% remained addicts after they arrived back at the U.S. And it was because they returned to their families, their regular lives. The drug wasn't as readily available. There were a lot of different reasons, but it sort of backs up the rat park thing 
that, um, and there were people, of course, that had, they were, uh, the ones that they tracked that did keep their addiction going when they got back to the U.S., often they had started when they were young, and often they were addicted before they went over to Vietnam. So they, they were already addicts before they even got there. So, uh, the, and there might have been one other factor, but that, so you get, get the idea. Um, so I just think this stuff is interesting. And, uh, and then the, Bruce Alexander is kind of a fun scientist because he's never afraid to kind of go against the mainstream. <laughs> but, so they asked him, what's currently going on in mainstream addiction research? I thought this might be worth sharing with you. And, I mean, this just came out literally um, last month. So Alexander says, I don't think there is a mainstream Addiction research is a vast field that includes biomedical, psychological, and sociological studies based on countless conflicting theories. Um, It can be bewildering even to try to catalog it all. Willpower theories, genetic theories, brain theories, trauma theories, immune deficiency theories, vitamin deficiency theories, psychological theories pointing to misplaced love, or a forlorn attempt to keep one's parents together by giving them something really big to worry about. There are innumerable hypotheses, but no one has solved the mystery to everyone's satisfaction. The one common assumption today is that the answer to the problem will be found in science and modern medicine, which locate the cause of addiction in the fallible individual and in the drug itself. This view can be traced back to the 19th century temperance movement and even earlier. The assumption is that drugs transform human beings into addicts who single-mindedly seek out more drugs. In the 19th century, addicts were called demon-possessed and degenerate. In the early 20th century, they were called drug fiends. Now biomedical researchers speak of drugs as putting people beyond willpower, or hijacking the brain. Despite the differences in language, I'm not sure there's been any change in the fundamental assumption. Um, So then they say, so if addiction doesn't arise from properties of the drug itself, what causes it? And he says, drug addiction of all kinds arise primarily from the relentlessly increasing dislocation in our society. What do you mean by dislocation? It's a word political economist Carl Polanyi used to describe alienation or disconnection, a state of being ungrounded and ill at ease. People are dislocated when their vital needs for individual autonomy and belonging are unmet. Dislocated people don't have a place in the established social order, and they fill that void with addiction. For instance, some young people can't stop playing video games because a virtual fantasy world provides the excitement, identity, and meaning that are lacking in their actual world. So I don't want to keep reading too much, but you get, uh, it's very interesting. And I know for me, I, uh, to go back to a little bit of my story, I grew up in a small town in Virginia, and to be honest, it was pretty boring. I mean, there wasn't that much going on there. <laughs> and when I discovered alcohol, 
there was something very exciting about the whole thing. I had to sneak it, uh, you know, or sneak around to do it, kind of got the adrenaline going. And, you know, the first time I did it was with my best friend at the time, and we were kind of running around the neighborhood, and some older kid pretended to be a cop because it was dark, and we couldn't, he just called to us from his car, but we couldn't see what kind of car it was, and scared us, and then laughed, and, you know, like, there was just a lot of, uh, it was maybe the most exciting night of my life, it seemed like, at that time, and I just, so I got this positive thing, plus it was very social, like, you could, um, get together with other people and do it and it was a cool it seemed like a cool thing or whatever so it gave me a sense of um, some kind of identity and purpose that I guess I was lacking so uh, well he does boy I mean I really would recommend if you're interested in this stuff uh, reading that whole Sun article I'm trying to think of I don't want to read too much more but um uh, March. Let's see. The Sun Magazine, yep. Let me just read a little more. He says, what, they say, what causes all this dislocation he's talking about? And Alexander says, the social and political system past generations struggle to create has been twisted into a cruel... I mean, you don't have to agree with everything he says, but twisted into a cruel and stupid imperial system dominated by multinational corporations. This is hard for people to admit. Who can bear to face the fact that the consumer society we were raised to cherish is actually making us apathetic, crazy, and vulnerable to addiction? The disconnected, fragmented nature of our culture causes addiction, which causes further fragmentation. Most serious addictions are actually an adaptation to dislocation. To some extent, addiction is a functional way of dealing with the problem. Of course, what people really need is to be genuinely recognized and accepted and believed in to have a purpose. kind of wanted to get that part in. What people really need is to be genuinely recognized, accepted, and believed in and to have a purpose. So I know for me... Uh, uh, Buddhist practice has done a lot of that, filled a lot of that void for me uh, in my past uh, couple decades now. And uh, so I think I can really relate to that as well. I, you know, I was, um, so I got sober at 21 and I went to all these 12-step meetings and I met a lot of people and it was a good experience. Um, but after at a, and at one point I had a corporate job. I had a girlfriend that I met in my office, you know, or whatever. And so uh, a little superficial in hindsight, <laughs> but um, anyway. And then we well, technically we got married, <laughs> and then we got divorced. And I sort of hit a, an emotional bottom. It was like. I, I thought I was doing all the right things, but I'm still not really happy. Like something here is off. Something is missing. And uh, right about that time, I went on my first Vipassana retreat at Spear Rock. <laughs> and that really, uh, that was when it felt like the last missing piece clicked into place. 
just for me, that there was something that happened there that uh, really came together. I, I felt like I had a real purpose because I really loved the practice. I really loved the teachings. And also, I was meeting people that weren't necessarily in recovery, but they also weren't, if they drank, it was probably like half a glass of wine with dinner once a week or, you know, something that didn't, that I couldn't relate to at all, but didn't, uh, <laughs> wasn't an issue probably for them. So, um, anyway, and then I ended up working. So I went on one other retreat and then got a job. Uh, I had applied for a job, not thinking I necessarily was even going to get it. And when I got off the second retreat, I had voicemail messages from Spirit Rock uh, saying, we'd like to call you in for an interview. And then a couple days later, uh, well, we haven't heard from you. If you're still interested in the job, please let us know. We'll do it. We'd like to interview. And then the last one, well, could you just call us and let us know you're okay and that you're not interested in the job anymore? <laughs> so <laughs> then I called them immediately and I was like, no, I totally want to have an interview. I just was on retreat at your center. <laughs> so <laughs> and we were in silence. So I wasn't on my phone. <laughs> Well, it's being a, being a good yogi. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of, sort of somehow it was perfect because it was a nice icebreaker when I actually met them in person. And uh, anyway, I ended up getting that job and working there for seven years, which was great and gave me a sense of purpose uh, and uh, belonging and community and things like that. Um, so anyway... I think that's maybe enough. I mean, there, were, there are many other things we could talk about, but that might be, I have not paid attention to the time, but <laughs> the, so, sure. Right. That's a great question. Uh, boy, I have to think about that for a second. Um, well, I think it was, the sense of community that, uh, well, because uh, that's a great, perfect question because one reason there, so there are, you know, a lot of people don't love uh, AA because of the God, they use the word God a lot. So, uh, so there, a lot of Buddhist related recovery groups are popping up because it gives, it gives an alternative if you're, if you have a problem, you, you certainly could still use the word God in a Buddhist group if that's what works for you, but there are people looking for alternatives. And uh, so one thing that people f- found was that, I know for myself, when I'm in a Buddhist recovery group, it brings, I feel like I can be fully myself in a way that if I'm at a straight 12-step meeting or just a Buddhist group, there's a little something of me missing in a weird way. But when I'm in a Buddhist recovery group, I just feel like I'm all there. I'm all in. Um, so I think it offered that. Uh, there was just a sense of community. Uh, you know, we meditated together. We'd have a talk. Uh, what was interesting is I ended up finding out that they didn't want me to talk for too long because everybody else wanted to be able to share as well. <laughs> so I kind of learned the hard way. After a little while, people started saying, you know, uh, you know, I love the group. <laughs> Enjoy your talks. We appreciate that you put them together. But we'd really like a little more time <laughs> to talk ourselves. Um, and, you know, and, and I was happy to do it. And, it. and that was the shift that I came upon on my own because Kevin Griffin is such a, 
uh, entertaining talker that he still doesn't <laughs> leave that much room for other people to talk, but uh, he has a lot of good stuff to share. But I just found that it really worked better if I didn't talk too much and let other people share. And uh, I certainly learned a lot from them, and I think there was more of a sense of community when people were had the space to share. Um, and, you know, we related to Buddhist teachings. Yes? So, as a member of the Sangha in which um, I know there are a number of addicts of either drugs or alcohol, um, what's the best thing that personally I can, how I can behave, what I can say, how I, what I can do that is helpful? And then see that there's a separation right there. It's like those folks, right? So, you know, what, how 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 can the song help? I th- yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think we could op- open it up for. I'd like I'd be very curious to hear other people's thoughts on that. Go ahead. <laughs> The first thing I thought of, um, uh, as far as at least a yoga studio that I'm a part of and um, other places, all carry Narcan. If you don't know what that is, it's a um, so. And usually there's some little sign that says like we have Narcan or Naloxone. And I think per- personally that like to me at least adds a level of of like comfort and safety and acceptance, just knowing that there's people who would be prepared if someone were to, like, not, I'm not saying people are going to be, like, shooting up in your bathroom, but, but if maybe a member of your sangha that is an addict relapsed and, and whatever... Um, I don't really know how to better. Yeah, and it's an acknowledgement of like their humanity of that mm. that you can exist here and you can be an addict and and we still accept you and support you and will create a condition or conditions that you can survive in. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> um. I want to answer uh, Gil's question to you. And one of the things that um, I, I admire about you and I'm drawn to you about is your vulnerability uh, and your honesty and your simply being present. And I think other people see that and they're drawn to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that answers your question um, is being able to see them as real human beings um, and not them out there, but we, and showing vulnerability as much as possible um, is a good way of connecting. Yeah, I was thinking something similar. Beautifully put, thank you. Some feedback I've gotten around the language around addiction and having had people who struggle with addiction in my family system 
I feel like it's important to use the language people use for themselves. So if somebody does call themselves an addict, then it's like, yes, but I wouldn't call someone an addict even if I think they have addictive behavior because I feel like it does kind of cause that that dualism. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think what's beautiful about Buddhism is it it does show us that we all have tendency for craving and addiction. And while I yeah. might not struggle the way my sister who struggled with heroin addiction did or does, um, I can also find some common ground with the things that I do struggle with to build empathy, even though, you know, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an addict per se. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, there, there certainly, um, piggybacking on that, there's an argument to be said, we're all addicted to something, even if it's just thinking, you know, so you can also think of it that way. That, <laughs> yeah. Suffering. Yeah, that was in today's topic about delusion. What is our delusion? And knowing what our own delusion is and seeing the delusion and, and keeping it there. So this is a perfect topic for today. Thank you. This is just kind of piggyback, piggybacking off of what Adam said, but it's kind of similar to like the argument for not using the word inmate for people who are incarcerated. Um, I know that there's a push to use language of people who are addicted or people who use drugs instead of saying, like, addict. You know, this is just a... Or those... That's a person who uses drugs or I, whatever. Instead of, that's... Like, you're an addict. No, you're still a person. It's person-first language. Thanks. Walt, I have another question. Um, are there chaplains in rehab facilities? Yes. Well, yeah, especially if they're with a hospital, I guess. Or and, and normal rehab centers have chaplains uh-huh. too. Okay, yeah. There, there was not in the one that I actually went to, but that was a long time ago and things have probably changed. Interesting question, yes. Thank you for coming. Are you, are you still running um, like a recovery group? And if so, is it open for like if I wanted to visit, would that be possible? Sure. Um, yes, we have um, still part of one at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland on the last Saturday of every month at, from 10 to noon, 10 a.m. to noon. And uh, it's uh, just to, and you would, yeah, it's not closed. I mean, you we'd probably... You, you could come and check it out. That's, that would be fine. It's based on this book or this program called Eight Step uh, Recovery by Vimala Sara, who's a, a Canadian uh, woman and friend of mine. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, just while we're at it, there are a lot of different Buddhist recovery-related programs these days. The other big one is Refuge Recovery. You may have heard uh, about this. This is really spread um it's talking to a guy from uh what is it fort fort lauderdale florida uh the other day he said there are 10 refuge recovery meetings in his area every week now just at fort in fort lauderdale florida so uh it's it's everywhere it's certainly big in the bay area um eight step recovery is bigger in canada and europe apparently and she's hoping to introduce it more 
here in the U.S. Um, it's you know they're not and they, you know they're all Buddhist informed by by Buddhist teachings, just slight variations. And then there's Kevin Griffin who um, doesn't he he says he intentionally didn't start a program because he didn't feel equipped to help people get into recovery. It was more he felt like he was more trying to help people that were already in recovery, kind of wanting to explore different. Uh, versions of uh, spirituality but nonetheless people come to his retreats even with not sometimes trying to get uh, sober get clean uh, anyway those those are a few and so there's the a website the buddhist recovery network has a website and they list all the different types of buddhist recovery meetings in your area so you can pick wherever you happen to be at the time and uh, see if there are any meetings in that area. Yes. I don't know exactly what their website is, but it's Buddhist Recovery Network. <laughs> I'm curious if you're willing to share, and I know this would um, will vary based on the person, but one of our themes today is truth-telling, and something I've struggled with is uh, confronting people about addiction. When does it, when, when is it, you know, like your family said, oh, you're in college versus the the consequences are, you know, are such that you would consider it addiction. And then how do you approach that person with that sort of um, lonely heart kind of attitude that your story had? Yeah, it's um, that's a great question. It's really hard. Um, you know, there's something called intervention where a family and friends will get together and confront somebody they really care about with their addiction and uh that the you know because of this denial factor that's so often prevalent with addicts and alcoholics it it is a tricky thing because it is true if you're naming it before they're comfortable naming it in themselves it's basically not going to go well (laughs) so it's very tricky territory i had a close friend of mine who i had known in recovery for 20 years relapse and uh, a lot of people that care about him he worked somewhere and people knew about addiction they would they were calling me because I was pretty known as one of his best friends saying we think he's using do something about it basically (laughs) and it was and the truth was I couldn't do anything about it until he was ready to do something about it and so it was painful I mean I would have liked to have done a lot more for him but I could he wasn't ready to quit you know, he was, uh, and then finally I got a phone call and he said, uh, I need help. And at first I didn't even know what he meant because <laughs> I was so used to his denial. Uh, but then it was like, oh no, you mean you're actually, you're actually, this is the real call. <laughs> and we got him into a treatment program that day. And that was, or I guess the next morning, I guess he did call it night. Yeah. But, uh, so a lot of times you have to wait for them to find their own bottom. But, yeah, there certainly are times when it's appropriate to call them on it, too. I mean, the way to call them on it would probably be to, to help them see the consequences. Like, you know, because I didn't get into it, but uh, one of the Buddhist teachings I love is the Buddha talked about the gratification, the danger, and the escape of uh things and and you know that the addicts don't see the danger i don't know why i mean we we're just so good at denying the danger part and we just really into the gratification part 
And uh, so helping people see the, the danger is kind of the, the key, I guess. And, the, and then to offer them the escape, hopefully. But thanks. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, one thing you don't want to do is enable somebody to continue with their addiction. So the way that you might work with that is to say you realize you've been doing some subtle enabling and you just weren't aware of it, is you set a boundary. And then if they get curious about why are you changing, you could, it might be your opening to at least say, well, you know, I realized that I think you might have a problem and I don't, I just don't want to contribute it because I'd like to see you healthier, uh, something like that. So, yeah, these are great suggestions. Uh, I appreciate you talking about uh, not about suicide and death, and that you didn't want to commit suicide, but you wanted to be dead, or something like that. That was my experience. Like, I had never thought about mm-hmm. committing suicide, but I just wanted to be dead. I just wanted the pain to be over. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe I had to give. Yeah, thanks. Yes. Thank you, Walt. This is good information. I read that article and, and it really struck me. I'm an alcoholic. And one thing that occurred to me in hearing mm. you speak is that, you know, the, the commonality of whether it's like a Buddhist recovery group or Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's tribal. It totally mm-hmm. ties in with this point, you know, mm-hmm. that you're back uh, belonging, you know, and connecting. And, and I had a question in terms of, like, my own sobriety. It was, you know, like the hardest thing that I ever done. I was really young, too. But um, what, and, and, and it's amazing, it's really fascinating what you bring up, how all over the map the why is in terms of alcoholism, you know. Like, I didn't realize how. In mm-hmm. this day and age, it's all over the map. But in terms of recovery, in terms of abstinence, it's, it's, it's a potential, it's potentially tangible. 
Are there uh, statistics out there that are reliable, in your opinion, in your expertise, in terms of uh, percentages of recovery of various groups? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm uh, afraid I don't. I mean, the, the, any, the statistics I've seen are always kind of disheartening because they're very low. Uh, a large percentage of people don't make it. Yeah. It's kind of a small percentage that do you know, statistically speaking. So I don't, I didn't bring any kind of numbers around that, but that's a great question. Um, yeah, I don't have any really concrete, but I, yeah, I mean, it's it's just worth noting that this is tough. People have a hard time kicking this stuff. Once they're really addicted or it's, uh, it, it's a very heartbreaking population to work with. I mean, even my friend who had been sober for 20 years, and um, you know, knew everything you need to know, uh, and he went to, again to treatment, and he had really good care at that treatment facility, one of the best places that I know of. Uh, but when he got out, he ended up relapsing again. The good news is he's now doing really well, but I was, it was jarring for me. I just figured, you know, he's got this now, like when he first got out of the treatment, I just... But he still relapsed again, so you know, even a couple times, I think. So yeah, it's it's a tough uh, thing to watch people go through, and a lot of people do die. I mean, one thing that helped me get sober and stay sober was knowing a fair number of people that died uh, doing similar things that I had been doing, and so part of it was seeing the life and death aspect of it as well. Sorry, did somebody have a hand up? Nope. Yes. I'm oh, good. No. Okay. Um, yeah. What hit for me? What you said, that really hit? It's the companionship. It's the being with each other. I was thinking of uh, of Jacques Verdun's program, Grip. I mean, we can, I can teach all I want in the jail, like I think I'm teaching meditation, but I'm realizing why I'm getting a lot of good benefits and success is because I'm not going in to Elmwood as a Buddhist chaplain seeing people one-on-one. It's not the Buddhist. It's the fact that I keep going in and bringing groups of men together. And that's, what's make, that's what, why they keep coming back, is to be together and I had that same thing. I actually had one guy say to me, hey, I heard about you from somebody else. They say, you're really good, but you talk too much. <laughs> and that's ex- that exactly, and that's the mode I try to do. I'm there to get them to talk. It's because of the companionship, because they don't get that. And then they also were talking about, and I've had it said to me, that when I come here, I am free for two hours. I am safe for two hours. That's what they're coming from. And because I have them, then I can start, I can do, I can teach all kinds of stuff. But that's why I really don't, mm-hmm. yeah, they ask, can you go one and one? Somebody has requested a Buddhist child. I, I can't be that effective. It's, and I, I, that just hit me. You know, in all the years I've been doing it, it's because I have a class that becomes a family by the end of eight classes. And they're just close and they open up. And I'm hoping that's what feeds them because I don't have any background with addiction. 
You know, I, I just, I don't have any of it, but I come in with at least bringing them together. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I didn't talk about the prison work much, but I do feel that that's what Buddhist Pathways Prison Project is. That's what we're good at. We go into prisons and we build uh, little communities, Buddhist sanghas in the prison. And um, it's really the the people that I've worked with in the prisons really appreciate and value that and they really uh it's it's a time where it doesn't matter what your sort of identity on the yard is everybody in the circle gets along great and and they can share with each other and uh they kind of leave the most of the politics out of the sanghas and uh that's been great it, and it's yeah it, it's a place where they can speaking of the truthful it's like a place where they can come and speak their truth with each other uh, where they nece- can't necessarily do it in the rest of the time at, at the prison. And, of course, a lot of people that, that I've met in prison are dealing with some kind of addiction, substance abuse issues, and a lot of them are... You know, one of the most prevalent things in all prisons and jails is AA and NA. I went to a training for... I also do... I actually do meet with people one-on-one at Santa Rita Jail because um, there's Mac, a max unit there where they can only meet with people one-on-one they're not allowed to have a group so it does there are people that need one-on-one care or whatever and uh but i went to this training and there was just an enormous amount of aana people volunteers there uh and then the last thing i'll say about it is that part of the the aa um, ethos is about service so it's like you have to you can't keep what you don't give away it's kind of the idea and um, that's been a really rewarding part of, of my what I've learned in this whole process as well is, is there's a real joy in that uh, service work and giving it away. So glad everybody here is taking the chaplaincy program. <laughs> you can all do that. <laughs> That supported working with addicts in particular? Or? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Just trying to come up with a really brilliant answer here. Give me a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I know. I know. I'm trying to just uh, feel into it. Um, I think. I think that what's coming to me is really just how every every person we meet with matters and it, and how important it is to just show up for that person and really give them our our love and attention and our, our caring attention in that moment um <clears throat> yeah i think that that's i i'm thinking about my friend who i'm still uh spending time with you know it's it's not easy going through the uh, recovery process. But yeah, just that, that, that caring presence that we, you know, we kind of learned how to bring to situations. 
One thing I always do remember that I learned in the chaplaincy program is when I arrive at the prison, it's kind of like I'm a chaplain from the moment I drive, the moment I drive onto the property and the whole time I'm there, I should remember I'm a chaplain in terms of interacting with anybody while I'm there that somehow to keep that in mind that I'm not like uh, there's something about that that's helpful yeah so that's kind of a that's my best answer at the moment (laughs) yeah my pleasure thanks